like I said, throughout the season, we'll be looking at the concept of shalom. And, and I've been defining shalom as, as this, as the reality of God's promised peace. And I think that's important to think about. It's shalom is the reality of the existence, of the, the experience, the present experiencing of God's promised peace. Peace, and that's a great definition. Um, but because we're going to take a few more minutes, I figure we should go a little bit digger, a little bit deeper into uh, what shalom is. And so, shalom is this Old Testament or this this Hebrew concept. And, and it's hard to really look at one verse and say this is where shalom comes from because it's just such a tapestry of God's entire work. Of, of all time, but it's this, so it's this rich kind of pervasive Old Testament concept throughout Hebrew culture, which was kind of the, the dominant culture of the Old Testament context. Um, Strong's exhaustive concordance defines shalom as this, it's completeness, it's soundness, it's welfare, and peace. So, so we, we see shalom used in Hebrew as, as a greeting and as a farewell, it's definitely defined as peace, translated as peace, but it's much more than just the absence of conflict. Often we kind of think of peace and define it in kind of in that negative term as the absence of conflict. But again, this this big picture of God's promised peace is is much bigger than just the absence of conflict. So we so we also see that shalom is used to represent external peace between two entities, between two people, between two nations, between two ruling, uh, between two, two ruling parties. So we see that it's external and relational. We also see in Scripture shalom represent an internal sense of peace of, of, the, of the individual, an internal sense of well-being. So all of those are accurate kind of definitions and uses of shalom. We say they're accurate because they come from Scripture and it's accurate, right? And so, but yet the bigger picture of shalom, those are all applications of what the bigger picture and promise of God's shalom is. So there's still a deeper or, or a more foundational meaning available to us. And just to kind of get us into that space, I want to look at a common passage for this Christmas or Advent season. So read with me Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given. We're talking about Jesus here, by the way. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this is this prophetic proclamation of, of the coming Messiah that we know to be Jesus. And you see some wonderful titles given to him, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then that last one, Prince of Peace. And that word peace there is Shalom, it's our word that we're talking about here. It is shalom. So Jesus being called the Prince of Peace speaks to the purpose for which he came and speaks to this reality of God's promised peace. So Christ, as the Prince of Peace, came to restore shalom's God's promised peace. And so that we see this coming of Christ is meant to restore what God intended to be. So what is God's shalom. And to answer that question, we just need to look back all the way into creation. Like, why did God create in the first place? And we're going to do this kind of in story summary form because, again, we want to leave space in our service for these other moments to reflect and, and some other, other times to respond. And so just more in quick form, what we know from Scripture and experience is that 
God created all things and he created, he created us in his image for his glory. That's, that's what we know. But then we also know that he created us for relationship with him. One, because he is a relational God, but also if it wasn't for relationship, he didn't need to create us at all. And why do I say that? Because God didn't need to create us for his glory. That is absolutely why he created us, is for his work, his image to be, to be manifested over the entire world. But he created us for relationship. And the, ways that, the reason I say that is because he didn't, he, his glory was intact. His glory was expressed before he created anything. We were created for his glory, but, but we do not cause his glory to be exhibited in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise. And so, because of that, knowing that we were created in his image and God is a relational God, we know that he created us for relationship. So he created us for relationship, and that is a, a loving, intimate relationship because he is a loving God. And so this, this idea of shalom, what God intended for creation, is that there would this be ex this existence where there is completeness, as Andy was saying earlier, completeness. There is a unity of relationship, a presence of intimacy, and a wholeness of all things. So that's where it starts. And so when we think of shalom, there is this deep, satisfied rest. When, when do you truly rest when you're on a job? When do you truly rest? You rest when the job is done. If the job's not done, you're not resting. You're taking a break. I have a kitchen. We all, most of us have a kitchen in our house. And um, we did some work to our kitchen. And you can look at our kitchen and think, oh, it's, it's done. It's, people come in, they say, our kitchen, your kitchen is beautiful. We love it. You did such a good job on it. About once a week, Amber probably wishes that it was more, but I walk in and I look at our baseboards and I see the job is not done. They're there, they are, they are intact, they're, they're, the seams are caulked, but they're not painted. They're, they're, they, and they're looking worse by the day. Um, and, and so like, I, I am not resting when it comes to that job. Amber's definitely not resting when it comes to that job. She is so gracious. I mean, like, I don't know how she doesn't bring it up every week. She hardly, I can't think of the last time you brought it up, so that's a lot of grace. Um, but, but that job's not done. And I'll tell you, like, I, 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 the times that I notice it, that rest is gone. Because all of a sudden, like, even if I don't engage it in that time, it's on my mind that it has to be done and it occupies space. So when do you rest? You rest when the job is done. And so we see when God created, when he created everything as it should be, on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. And so there's this sense of completeness. And for us, we're longing for that. We're longing for that kind of completeness, that kind of shalom where there's nothing hanging over us. So what happened? What happened to this shalom? And this is where we come to our, our idea today of shalom's enemy. Like, what was it? And that, that circle, I just, it's such a perfect picture that it's, it's kind of intact, but it's, you know, it's broken because, again, God holds it together, but yet things have been fractured. Like, what happened? How do we get to this place? So, Shalom's enemy, this, this fracture happened when we, collective humanity and Adam and Eve, sinned, when we rebelled against God. When that happened, evil entered into the world and shattered what was complete. It shattered relationship between everything. Adam and Eve went from being at peace without fear or shame and in peaceful relationship with all of creation and God himself 
to recognizing they were naked and they were ashamed and they feared and they hid from God. That's cataclysmic and it's heartbreaking. Do you connect with that? And now we see the consequence of this fracture. So, so we're going to look at Genesis 3, 16 through 19. And so coming up to this point, it is the story of creation. It's, this, the, it's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the confrontation and the temptation from the serpent. It's them, it's them actually b- b- believing a lie, choosing a lie, choosing that they knew better than God, rebelling against him, and taking of the apple. And now they've been found out. Here's where we're at. So God says, In verse 16 here, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So this fracture, this fall, affected much more than just their eternity. It impacted their daily experience. And I think for us, often when we kind of try to think about hope, we just think of it as a far-off eternity. But this, 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 this need is very present. So the enemy of us living in God's shalom is the tragedy of the fall that came in our rebellion. It is the tragedy of our sinning against God. So the enemy of shalom is Satan himself in our sin because he is a tempter, he is a liar, he has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and we have thrown our lot in with him when we decided, hey, he probably knows better than God. Because that's in essence what's happened. It's a stark reality. So this fracture that happened, this fracture of what was so complete and beautiful, it fractured all relationship. It refractured our relationship with creation. You see that now all of a sudden the work, see, like work is not a curse. Work was good. It was present before this, but now our work is futile. Do you see that because, like, as, our, as we work, it produces thorns and thistles, and we will, we will be provided for, but it's going to be with toil. We'll eat the plants, but, you know, but yet, and we'll have bread, but it'll be by the sweat of our face. So we see this, this fracture of the relationship between us and creation. There's this, there's this tension now. We also see this fracture of relationship between us and one another, and we saw it exhibited so sadly in Adam and Eve. I mean, what did Adam do when God confronted him? When God said, hey, he said unto Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife. And by, way, by the way, the sin that Adam committed was not listening to his wife. It was not listening to God. And he said, he said you know, you've eaten of this tree which I commanded you shall eat of it. So if you don't know what happened when this got confronted earlier, Adam said, well, hey, the woman that you gave me did this. She's the one who told me to eat it. So he blames her. And if you don't know, just a few chapters earlier, one chapter earlier, when she was created, I mean, Adam is in perfect paradise and perfect relationship with God. And yet when Eve was put before him, he said, basically, oh my gosh, at last, what I've been looking for. And not in a way that satisfied something that wasn't already satisfied, but just in a way that was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is the perfect thing that God has created. And so this, this, this man that went from cherishing her now threw her under the bus. So we see this fracture of relationship with one another. And then we see a fracture of relationship with God. 
Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in the cool midst of the day. They related. Who knows what it was like? But there was, there was this, this deep, intimate relationship. And now all of a sudden, they're hiding in the bushes in fear and shame. Perfect love casts out fear because fear is to do with punishment. There was no sense of that. Now all of a sudden, their, their, their conscience is burdened. They're, they see themselves as, as something else than what they are. And they all of a sudden have to hide and compensate. And they go and they, they cover themselves with leaves and they hide in the bush. So this relationship with God was fractured. And then we see also death. Life was no longer forever. Death entered in until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. And so we see in this great motif of God's redemptive work in all of, all of time that he created, he created good, he created for his glory, and he created out of love and for relationship, but there was this fall and this fracture, so this is where we are. And this is why the world is hard. This is why you struggle and strain every day. This is why you long for more. Because there was meant to be more. That is, that's what Advent is all about. That's what this season is meant to draw us into. Again, like Andy said, it's this, it's this idea of coming. And with that comes a sense of anticipation because what we're talking about is the coming of our deliverer, Jesus, the Messiah, our delivering, liberating king. So for the Jewish people in the biblical times, it was this promised Messiah that they had, that they had long awaited. And if you don't know, for 400 years, God had been silent. At that time, God spoke through the prophets, and they hadn't spoken for 40 years. So you got to think generations come and generations go. And in the grand scheme of history, 400 years doesn't sound that long, but you sit in 400 years. And you're in, that, you're in that fourth century, and your family's been talking about this, this hope to come. And yet, this God that doesn't show. Like, what are you clinging to? And so all of a sudden, Jesus comes. What an elation. So we're meant to connect in the season. We want to connect with their experience of this longing and desperation and this fulfillment of that. And now we get to, as we live in the age of Jesus, where he has come and he's coming again, we have a present hope, but also a hope that is not fully complete when, they're, when all is restored. So if you anguish in this world over the hurt and the violence and the tragedies, and if you need some examples to stir your mind, I mean, just the senseless killings we see. I mean, if you just watch the local news, it's done on the one-on-one every day, but we've also just got these horrifying pictures of just these, these great acts of hate and violence. If, if that anguishes you, if that, if that just tears you up, or, or if you watch this disregard for the outcast and the oppressed, or you watch this abuse of power and it's almost celebrated or just ignored, or the natural disasters that seem so senseless, every bit of this is, a, is an expression and an evidence of a shalom that has been fractured, of, of the, the, the enemy that has entered in. And so if this doesn't sit well with you, if this bothers you, let me tell you, you are not wrong. You are right to feel that way. It shouldn't sit well with you. You're in good company. Guess who else has their heart broken over this reality? God himself. His heart was broken enough to send his one and only son, his sinless beloved, to enter in and restore 
and redeem the very ones who had caused the fracture in the first place. So if you have ever said or you've ever heard, I don't know if I can believe in God because how can all this exist? How can all this pain and evil exist and Him be real? Here's your answer. And you're seeing what God is doing and what He has done. He held back no expense to restore. He held back no expense to heal. This is not what He intended. This is His work to restore. So what is our opportunity this Advent season. Uh, one is to know your enemy. And I was talking to Dave beforehand, and I love what he said. He said, you know, um, are, are you mentioning, or because he's going to follow up with communion in a minute, um, but, uh, you know, are you mentioning, or, or should I mention that we were all once enemies of God? And that's the first thing that's really important to recognize, is that, it, you know, bef- if you have not confess Christ, if you have not come into his redeeming fold, um, that is where you are. You are opposed to God. If you have, you cannot forget that you once were an enemy of God. Um, But as we think about knowing our enemy, um, we're not helpless to wrestle this futility. Again, see what God has done. He He has sent his only son to restore God created all things to live at peace with creation, one another, and with him. He has made a way for us to experience that today. We are not each other's enemies. Whether, whether, you know, whether it's kind of a, a faith divide where we have a different belief, we, we, we too often get sucked into somehow making us be enemies of one another. Our hearts should be for others just as his heart is for us or whether it's just these false surfacey divides, whether it be racism or classism or, or just kind of different worldviews, we too often vilify the other. We are not each other's enemies. Our common need and our common promise are our common bond. In Christ, we are no longer enemies of God either. So know your enemy. Next, take responsibility. First, once again, take responsibility for yourself. Let me just say this lovingly. You're not innocent of all this. You're not innocent of any of it. You're a part of it. So if you need to today, repent and believe and be restored and know that God wants you in his fold. He he is doing this to restore you. So be humbled and repent. Also, if you again, if you're walking with Christ, take responsibility for the world around you. So being made innocent by the blood of Jesus being restored, we're going to talk a lot about that uh, next week as we look at Shalom Promised. Taking responsibility for the world around you in response to this reality is what we're going to talk about in two weeks in, uh, as we look at Shalom together. And then lastly, just want you to take heart. Take heart. Um, because of Jesus, we have a very present hope, and we also have a, a day that will come when there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. So as you drive around this season, walk around, as you, as you go to the parties, you buy the presents, you see the lights, whatever you do, anything that stirs you up, let it remind you, like, yes, there is a tension in this world because it's not meant to be this way. But the very thing that we're celebrating on Christmas Day is God's work to restore. 
We're going to close with this verse. John 16, says this. I have said these things to you, this is Jesus speaking, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I hope you stay with us throughout the season because you hear that it's going to be a great picture of the work of Christ. Let me pray and we'll go into communion. God, you are good. Um, Lord, I pray that you would not allow these words just to go in one ear and out the other or just to kind of cause us to nod our heads in these moments, but there would be words of truth that dig deep into our hearts, Lord, that uh, liberate us, Lord, from, from sin, liberate us from fear and shame, Lord, as only Christ can do. Lord, we thank you that you've given us these moments um, to remember who you are, Lord, who you created us to be, how you've worked to restore us to that in Christ, and Lord, our very present hope um, that we have in him. So Lord, I just pray for this time now as we continue in communion. Let this continue to be a response and a reflection of uh, your work in our lives in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.